lesson on which our teaching tonight is based comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Here we read, Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And is not the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, that's the non-believers, that's the people who don't have promises from God. The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of those other things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here ends our lesson. Mentioned at the beginning of the service that this week we are starting an eight-week series on our core values at St. Marcus. Your core values are essentially like your identity. It's a durable core and a center that you take with you everywhere you go in every circumstances of life, the thing that doesn't change. And this has been a process, like I said, for about two years at St. Marcus uh, with some of our leaders gathering together. Uh, I was involved in it. Uh, Fred Lautz, our executive director, was involved in it. Henry Tyson, our superintendent, was involved. And Aaron Johnson, our principal, uh, was in graduate school, is still in graduate school, but at the time was going through uh, the process of learning how to lead an organization through finding uh, core values, the, the essentials, what makes you you, your durable center. And I was really proud of the process, and I was really pleased with the end result. And we're going to take two weeks on each of these core values over the course of the next eight weeks. But the first of the four is simply Christ first. And with each of these core values, what we wanted to do is we wanted to establish sort of a home-based scripture passage that was the place that we turned to that was the, what is the proof? What is the, the proof positive that this is in fact a biblical Uh, concept. And the passage that we came up with for Christ first was our our home-based passage. Lutheran theologians refer to this as the sedes doctrinae, by the way, the seed of doctrine, is Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. As a Bible teacher, I also know something else, though. I know that it's very easy to take a passage out of Scripture, rip it out of its context, and uh, kind of finagle it to fit whatever agenda you specifically have in your life. Satan does this with Jesus and tempting him in the wilderness. He quotes Scripture, he abuses it, and he uses it however he wants to use it for his own purpose. And I wanted to make sure that we weren't doing any of that when it came to our base passages for our core values. And so it was important to me that we study the context of each of these core values as well. The context is what we just read a moment ago, verses 25 through 34. And if you had to summarize that section of Scripture, maybe you just had one little sentence, one concise phrase, what is it about? Maybe just one word. 
what would you say that section of Scripture is about? Very clearly, it's about worry, anxiety, fear. The, the Greek word merimnao, or a variation of it, is used six different times in this lesson. By far, the most commonly used word. Uh, Jesus says repeatedly, do not worry. So this text is all about anxiety and worry and stress and fear. And Jesus tells us, I'm going to tip my hand here and we're going to work back and say, how, what does this all mean? But I'm going to tip my hand and what is the answer to your anxiety? Jesus says it is to seek first his kingdom. That is totally counterintuitive to the way human beings look at things. If you're stressed out about finance, you seek first financial solutions. If you're stressed out about relationships in life and I'm lonely and, I'm, and I, I, want, I want to have somebody, you sink all your time and energy and resources and your conver every conversation that you have turns into uh, trying to find that special someone. You seek first the relationship. Jesus says, uh-uh, don't take that bait. Don't seek first the thing that your heart in this world is set upon. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all those other things will be added to you as well. It's very unnatural from our perspective. It's not our default. Furthermore, as we're thinking about as a community of believers embodying this character trait of Christ first, you can kind of reverse engineer that whole logic and figure out what is the biggest obstacle to putting Christ first in our lives. If Jesus is teaching us in this lesson that the solution to our anxiety is to seek first his kingdom, that means that the number one thing that stands as an obstacle in the way of us seeking first the kingdom, the number one thing that's an obstacle to putting Christ first is what? It's not um, a lack of knowledge. It's not that God's people don't know we're supposed to be putting Jesus first. It's not even like Sometimes we talk about or in defined sin in terms of like self-centeredness and selfishness. It's, it's that, but it's, not, it's more specific than that. This thing that stands in the way primarily of us putting Christ first in our life, according to what Jesus says here, is what? Our fear. We are desperately and utterly afraid to hand over the reins of our life and surrender them to Jesus' control, the perceived control that we do have, because we don't know and we don't inherently trust and believe that he loves us enough, he's powerful enough, and he's wise enough to give us the things that we need to get in order to make ourselves happy and content. The biggest thing that stands in the way of putting Christ first in our lives is our own anxiety. And so we're going we're gonna to break it down like this here tonight. I'm going to break it into these three points. We'll look at the cause of anxiety, the flaw of anxiety, and the cure for anxiety. The cause, not just what do you get anxious about in life, but do you understand what anxiety actually is? Uh, the flaw of anxiety, why it is completely useless energy that robs you from energy on more important things. And the cure for anxiety, why what Jesus teaches us here is not just three self-help steps to keep overcoming anxiety, although there are things we can do, what we really need is a cure for the disease of unbelief. Okay? So the cause, the flaw, and the cure for anxiety. First of all, the cause of anxiety. Um, are you self-aware enough to know why you worry? I'm not saying what you worry about. Do you know why you worry about that thing? Do you know what anxiety at its heart actually is? Every single one of us has an ideal for our life. Either consciously or subconsciously, you have, we'll call it a vision for the good life. The way I would like my life to go. Consciously or subconsciously. Imagine it like an arrow that's extending from your chest and moving out into your future and you know exactly what needs to happen in your life in order for you to be contented, satisfied, and happy. And then reality sets in. 
and you realize that there's thousands of other forces out there that are bending that arrow of my ideal off of the ideal. It's turning it, it it's, it's pulling it away. And I don't have enough resources uh, at my disposal to bend the reality arrow back to the ideal arrow. The distance between your ideal and your reality, the distance is directly proportional to how much anxiety you currently have in your life right now. Okay? Now, furthermore, if you have so much anxiety in a prolonged state, it leads to one of two things. It either makes you uh, depressed or it makes you intolerable to be around. Now, I always thought it just made you depressed because that's what I do with my anxiety. I internalize all of it and uh, it sinks deeper and deeper and deeper and, uh, and then eventually I collapse and become depressed. I realize it's, it's different because I married a woman who does, she's never been depressed a day in her life so far as I can tell. But she gets real intolerable sometimes. Uh, if she gets anxious, her fuse gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And she doesn't implode, she explodes on me. See? And so every, every single human being has that anxiety. If you don't deal with it, you're either going to explode or you're going to implode. For me, uh, it's imploding. And you know why that happens? Because every human being only has so much energy. We're finite creatures. We're not infinite like our creator God. What I mean by finite is you understand this physically. If I were to set up a weight bench right here with 250 pounds on it, and uh, I said, okay, who's up for the challenge? Who can bench press 250 pounds? My guess is we'd get a couple of takers. Some brave souls would come on up, and maybe they could bench press 250 pounds. What if at that moment I said, okay, now hold it. So you have enough energy and enough resource to get that dumbbell up. Hold it. How long can you keep this up? A minute? Five minutes? Ten minutes before the whole thing comes crashing down on you and crushes you completely. The exact same thing is true of us uh, emotionally and psychologically as it is physically. You only have so many emotional resources. Uh, you can only sprint. You can only press so hard for so long. Uh, and anxiety is the overexpenditure of the finite resources that you have for emotion and feeling, uh, the psychological resources that you have. And at some point in time, you're, you physically essentially sort of collapse. And if you experience depression, you know what that feels like. It's numb and it's your, you can't enjoy anything. You feel useless. You can't do anything. Um, and so anxiety is, is this thing that in a prolonged state, what we do have here is a choice. It sounds very bizarre because Jesus three times in our lesson says, do not worry. Most of the time, most of us tend to define sin in terms of things that we might enjoy but know we shouldn't do. Uh, and you think, well, how can anxiety be a sin? Because I don't enjoy this at all. It absolutely is a sin. I remember how liberating this was for me when I first discovered this. I used to think, well, yeah, stealing is a sin and adultery is a sin and hurting and murder is a sin. Jesus three times says, do not worry. It's not just a luxury that you're afforded if you're a believer. It is a command that your Lord gives to you. You don't get to do this. You're not allowed to worry. It's not an option for you. How absurd would it be if uh, I, I went out and stole from a bunch of rich people and said, Jesus, I'm just uh, helping them not be so materialistic. Or what if you were very liberal in, in, with your sexuality and you went out and you slept around with everybody and you said, Jesus, I'm just being very generous with my sexuality. 
you'd say, that's preposterous. Don't make excuses to defend a behavior that Jesus has condemned. So if you're the type of person that worries all the time and says, well, I'm just very cautious, I'm very responsible, you know, I'm very mature, I'm being concerned and I'm being careful. And doesn't Jesus want us to be careful? Well, yeah, maybe that's the case or maybe it's just unbelief. You're not actually trusting God's promises. Don't justify behaviors that Jesus directly has commanded you not to do. Do not worry. Don't tolerate that in yourself. Okay? Uh, so first of all, cause of anxiety. It's when our lives, we perceive the reality to be bent further away from what we think we need to have happen in order for us to be happy. Uh, Jesus says, don't you dare think you know better than I do what you truly need for your goodness in your life. The flaw of anxiety, not only is it wrong, but it makes absolutely no sense for God's people to experience anxiety. Why? I'm going to give you three quick reasons. Number one, anxiety assumes unrealistic control. There's a verse in here, verse 27, that says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? What it literally says there in the Greek is, can any of you by worrying add a cubit to your stature? Now, a cubit, if you remember from your Noah's Ark study, a cubit is a length of measurement, like from, the, from here to here or so, about a foot and a half. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is, can a little guy, by worrying about being too short, make himself taller? The obvious answer is no. Now, can you control your height at all? Not really. You can stand up a little straighter. You know, you can maybe, I'm six foot one and a half, but most of the time I hover around about six foot because I hunch over a little bit. But I can control my height maybe by about an inch and a half. And that's about right. That's about how much control you actually have over your life. Your height is pretty much predetermined by your genetics and maybe some nutrition and some other factors like that. And you can influence that height by maybe about an inch and a half. Uh, Now, I'm not undermining that inch and a half. You should be faithful with that inch and a half. You should stand up straight. You should stand up proud. And you should straighten up to God's glory. But that's all you get over your life and over your height is about an inch and a half. The other 72 inches are pretty much dictated by the providential sovereign God. Therefore, don't pretend like you have more control over your life than what you actually have. This is part of the blessing of the problems that we experience in life because when we feel like things are falling out of our control, it's actually sobering us up to the reality of how little we actually have control that we have over the universe in the first place. Uh, there's some of you have asked me before, I decided to bring it in, about a picture that I ha- have in my office. It sits right behind me. I don't know if you can read it from there, but it says, Let Philip cease to rule the world. It's a quote by Martin Luther. And uh, it's kind of a not very well-known quote, but what it was is Martin Luther, uh, his right-hand man during the Protestant Reformation was Philip Melanchthon, and some historians would consider Melanchthon to be the uh, maybe even uh, superior academic to Luther, but spiritually a little weaker. And uh, Melanchthon, who helped Luther write a lot of his stuff, was constantly worried about everything. See, they were going up against the entire Roman church on earth, the, the, the holy Christian church on earth, and they realized that if they called them out on the stuff that they were doing, uh, they could be, Melanchthon and Luther could be put to death. And Melanchthon was constantly fretting about this, constantly thinking maybe we should compromise a little bit, maybe we can find some wiggle room here. And you know what Luther would say to them? Let Philip cease to rule the world. You know what that means? 
Philip, stop pretending like you have more control over this life than what you actually have. Be faithful with your inch and a half. Just do God's will in that inch and a half and let him sort out the other 72 inches of your life. Okay? Uh, it makes no sense because it assumes unrealistic control over your life. Anxiety is wrong uh, and makes no sense because it hurts us. Um, see, God calls us to be good stewards of our bodies. He, Jesus redeemed not only our souls, but he redeemed our bodies too, and therefore we have to take good care of them. We don't just get to eat whatever we want. We don't just get to uh, do whatever we want with our bodies. We have to take good care of them. Uh, and so that includes uh, things like anxiety that can actually hurt it. We tell our little kids, don't you dare do drugs because you don't want to put those lethal chemicals into your body because they'll wreak havoc. And yet, if you are guilty of anxiety all the time, you know what you're doing? Your body is producing tons of ter lethal amounts of chemicals, things, uh, things like cortisol, things like adrenaline, uh, things like epinephrine, at, at, at unrealistic rates that can actually cause things like ulcers and hypertension and heart disease and gastrointestinal problems and stuff like that. Um, it's fascinating. You know, we have this thing called this, uh, autonomous, uh, autonomic nervous system, I believe is what it's called. But it's basically, as I understand it, kind of like your fight or flight mechanism. The interesting thing is uh, it, it's a blessing because it can help us get out of dangerous situations and give us additional resources to get out of those dangerous situations. The problem is the human brain does not know the difference between real danger and perceived danger. You have to tell it what's real danger and what's perceived danger. That's the reason why it's so funny when you show somebody else a video on YouTube that something pops up at the end and they jump back and they recoil and they scream. There's no danger coming through the screen. Their brain can't tell the difference between real danger and perceived danger. So what if you walk around consciously anxious in your life and every possible thing is a threat? That nervous system stays on the entire time and wreaks havoc on your system and lowers your immune system and does all sorts of other terrible stuff. Not trusting God's promises, that is not just a spiritual problem, it's a physical problem too. It's poor stewardship of your health. Thirdly, Anxiety makes no sense for God's people because it doesn't follow the logic that Jesus is teaching here. If you look in verses 26 and 28, Jesus uses two illustrations, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And he's getting across the same basic point in each. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet they seem to eat pretty well. You don't see a whole lot of birds keeled over alongside the road from starvation. You see birds dying. They're not particularly bright. You see them sometimes, I find them every once in a while outside my patio door because they can't understand glass. They haven't figured that out, and so sometimes there's a dead birdie right there. But I don't see them dying because of starvation. In other words, they don't get fed because they're so savvy or they're so smart or they work so hard. Uh, and even the smartest, most talented bird on the planet Earth doesn't control the sunshine and doesn't control the vegetation and doesn't control the rainfall, and so they have very little control over their existence, and yet they're so well provided for. Uh, and same is true with the flowers. The flowers don't wake up in the morning and think, what they're gonna, uh, think about what they're going to wear, and yet they're more beautiful, he says, than just about anybody or anything. Why? They don't control the, the rainfall. They don't control the sunshine. Your heavenly Father provides for them. Aren't you more valuable to God than a little sparrow? 
Did God put, uh, call the crown of his creation the little sparrows? No, he said it was you. Did God put his image on the sparrows? No, he put it on you. Did Jesus come and pour out all his blood on the cross to pay for the sins of all of the little sparrows? No, he paid for yours and my sins so that we could be his brothers and sisters for all eternity. And so be reasonable about it. Do you honestly think Jesus would come from heaven to earth and go through hell in order to rescue you and pay for every last one of your sins with all of his blood, but he's not going to help you out when the rent comes due later in the month? Does that make any sense? He's, he's going to be nowhere to be found when the car repair bills come in. The Apostle Paul uses the exact same logic in Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, it's naive, it's unhealthy, and it's illogical for us to be anxious. But here's my final point. Unfortunately, we are kind of naive and unhealthy and illogical beings. Um, in fact, that's kind of our default setting. We don't just need to get toughened up. Uh, what is the thing? We don't just need self-help steps. Uh, we need to be cured of the disease of our unbelief. And so the only thing that can actually transform us from like very practical, concerned worry warts into theological tough men and women is the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's how it works. Most of us, the default position, in fact, all of us, I'd say, the default position is we tend to think what we feel. In other words, you, you let your heart tell your brains what to think about the reality of your life. And that's a disaster because your hearts can change very quickly and sometimes they're just completely dead wrong. What a believer does is it takes the good news of Jesus Christ, the 2,000 plus promises that God gives us in scripture, and it doesn't let our hearts tell our brains what to think. We fill our brains with God's promises and we tell our hearts what to feel. You understand the difference? Your default position is you let your heart and your feelings tell your brain what to think about the reality of your life. Uh Uh-uh, not with a Christian. You fill your brain with God's promises, and then through repetition, through prayer, through repentance, through worship, through praise, you drill down the truths that God gives you from your head, and you drill them down, and you tell your heart how to feel. Uh, It it makes you indestructible. Um, The cross, what what is the ultimate proof? Even if you don't have a bunch of Bible passages memorized, what can you remember? Remember a cross and remember an empty tomb. The cross is the undeniable proof that God loves you enough to help you, enough to save you, enough to die for you. The cross proves he loves you. And the empty tomb is absolute undeniable proof that he has supreme control and authority over this life, including your life. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you know that all of your needs, all of those things that he knows you need, will be added to you as well. Let the God who loves you infinitely to the point of his own death worry about your life. You just worry about carrying out his will. He'll take care of the rest. Um, This is, this is a, you might have even heard this illustration before because it's a super cliche preaching illustration, but I'm going to use it anyways because it just perfectly fits here. There's a story about Queen Elizabeth I of England who reigned in the the 1500s, and apparently this is kind of the age of exploration and whatnot, and she had a crew form that she wanted to go out on a mission for her and discover the new world and all that kind of stuff. And there was one merchant who had, he he was also a sailor and had a unique particular skill set 
to be on that voyage. And she said she needed him on that voyage, but his business was going bad. And he says, my business is falling apart. I can't leave right now. I have to tend to it day and night. And Queen Elizabeth says to this guy, listen, my dear friend, you tend to my business and I'll make sure I tend to your business. And at that point, all of his fears started to go away because he realized what a good deal this was. If he could have an absolute, like a monarch, a ruler of absolute power, an absolute wealth, an absolute resource, take care of all of his business stuff, that's a fantastic trade. All he had to do was concentrate on her work. What if you have a ruler who's more powerful than Queen Elizabeth who gives you the exact same deal? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of those other things will be given to you as well. The one who paid for every last one of your sins with his own blood is sure to pick up your bill for dinner too. Do not let yourself worry. There's no need. Now, uh, as we close here today, I want to say, here's what we've covered so far. So this is only week one of of two weeks. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what does it look like to embody these character traits of, of Christ first in our lives. And this week, basically all we've said uh, thus far is our default position is not to put Christ first in our lives. Why? Because we don't want to, sur- we're afraid. We don't want to surrender control. We don't want to even try it his way. We want to try it our way first. But we also acknowledged that we don't have nearly as much control over our lives as we think we do. We're not nearly as qualified to run our lives as we think we, we are. And when we try to take control over our lives, it actually makes us more unhealthy along the way. So, the cure for our fear is simply to seek first his kingdom. You will actually believe that you don't need to be in control of your life if you realize you have an all-loving, all-powerful God who is. And next week, again, we pick up with practical ways of what this might look like in our lives, but we're acknowledging this week there is such a thing as performance anxiety. It's hard to carry out Christ to first in your life if you're living afraid. And so what I want you to do this week is this. I want you to identify what is the thing that makes you the most nervous. What are you most anxious about right now? Uh, What is the thing that you're running after? Remember Jesus says in our text, the non-believers, they run after all these things. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is they put all of their energy into it. All of their thoughts, all of their time, all of their energy, all of their money is going after the things that God will provide. That can't be you. If you are desperate for a relationship, what does it look like to put Jesus in front of that relationship? If you are desperate for happiness in your life, many of us are. I just want to be happy. I just want to be comfortable. No. Put Jesus in front of your comfort. Put Jesus in front of your happiness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. A couple weeks ago, we said C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope and, and mere Christianity. Remember what he said? He said, aim for heaven and get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, you'll get neither. Um, I filed away an article earlier this year from the Journal of Consumer Research. It was, I thought it was really fascinating. They, they said that the American consumer has a really fatal flaw and weakness. We always default to what we perceive to be urgent over what's truly important. We always default to what we see as urgent over what's really important. New York Times actually picked up the piece and wrote an article on it themselves called Why Your Brain Tricks You Into Doing Less Important Tasks. Do not take the bait. Do not seek the happiness ahead of the kingdom. 
Seek his kingdom and the happiness gets thrown in. All of your needs will be met. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's my final thought. I love the callback in this lesson. This is the first time in studying this text this week. This is the first time I've ever seen this. I knew that Jesus referenced Solomon. It didn't get a hint as to why. Um, because Solomon was the embodiment of this. You remember he says, not even the flowers in all their, uh, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed as beautifully as the flowers. Why does he bring Solomon up? I couldn't figure out why. I mean, we're told in the Old Testament that Solomon's tremendously wealthy, so you can assume that he has some nice clothes, but we're never told, so far as I can tell, that he was like the snappiest dresser of all time. So why use Solomon as a point of reference? I think Jesus is planting the seed of Solomon in their brains because Solomon was a guy who had to make a choice. He was a man that God gave the option to choose between the urgent and what was really important. God comes to Solomon. You can read it for yourself in 1 Kings 3. He comes to Solomon at Gibeon in the middle of the night and he says, I will, it's unprecedented. I'll give you whatever you want. And what does Solomon choose? I need discernment. Not just because I want to be the smartest guy in the room, but because I'm supposed to govern your people. I want to do it to your glory. I want to do it to their benefit. And God is so delighted because Solomon hasn't chosen health and God has, Solomon hasn't chosen wealth and Solomon hasn't chosen power, but he's chosen to put God first. And God essentially says to him at that moment, because you've sought first my kingdom and my righteousness, all of those other things will be given to you as well. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, tonight we humbly come before you and we ask for forgiveness for running in the wrong direction. Every single one of us is running after something right now. We're running after wealth or we're running uh, in, after career success or we're running after a romantic relationship or we're running after friendships or we're forgetting the one thing needful. Help us to seek first to prioritize your kingdom. Thank you for sending your son who had a one-track mind. He glorified you by seeking us first, ensuring our salvation. Make us brave to respond with love and submission and faithfulness as well and seek him first. In your name we pray, amen.